Part Two of *The Machine That Saved the World* by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. The broadcasts said Leaky mildly, claim a remarkable reason for certainty about an extremely grave danger which is almost upon the world. If it's the truth, Sergeant, it is appalling. If it is a lie, it may be more appalling. The Joint Chiefs of Staff take it very seriously. In any case, they. I got cold shivers," said Sergeant Bellews with irony. "I'm all wrought up, huh? The big brass gets to yellin' yollops every so often, anyhow. Listen to them, and nothing happens except it's top priority, top secret, extra crash emergency. What do you want to know about Betsy?" There was a sudden squealing sound from the communicator on which all the extra recording devices were focused. Betsy's screen lighted up. Peculiarly curved patterns appeared on it. They shifted and changed. Noises came from her speaker. They were completely unearthly. Now they were shrill, past belief. And then they were chopped into very small bits of sound, and again they were deepest bass when each separate note seemed to last for seconds. You might, said Leaky calmly, tell us where your Betsy gets the signal she reports in this fashion. There were whirrings as recorders trained upon Betsy captured every flickering of her screen and every peeping noise or deep tone rumble. The screen pattern changed with a sound, but it was not linked to it. It was a completely abnormal reception. It was uncanny. It was somehow horrible because so completely remote from any sort of human communication in the year 1972. The three scientists watched with worried eyes. A communicator, even with a Mahone unit in it, could not originate a pattern like this, and this was not conceivably a distortion of anything transmitted in any normal manner in the United States of America, or the Union of Compubs, or any of the precariously surviving small nations not associated with either Colossus. "'This is a repeat broadcast,' said one of the three men suddenly. It was Howell, the heavy-set man. I remember it. I saw it projected like this, and then unscrambled. I think it's the one where the social system's described, so we can have practice to try to understand, remember?" Leakey said, as if the matter had been thrashed out often before, I do not believe what it says, Howell. You know that I do not believe it. I will not accept the theory that this broadcast comes from the future. The broadcast stopped. It stopped dead. Betsy's screen went blank. Her wildly fluctuating standby light slowed gradually to a nearly normal rate of flicker. "'That's not a theory,' said Howell dourly. "'It's a statement in the broadcast. We saw the first transmission of this from the tape at the Pentagon. Then we saw it with the high-pitched parts slow down, and the deep bass stuff speeded up. Then it was a human voice giving data on the scanning pattern, and then rather drearily repeating that history said that intertemporal communication began with broadcasts sent back from 2180 to 1972. It said the establishment of two-way communication was very difficult, and read from a script about social history to give us practice in unscrambling it. It's not a theory to say the stuff originates in the future, it's a statement. Then it is a lie, said Leakey very earnestly. 
Truly, Howell, it is a lie. Then where does the broadcast come from? demanded Howell. Some say it's a compub trick, but if that were true, they'd hide it for use to produce chaos in a sneak attack. The only other theory— Graves, the man with the short mustache, said jerkily, No, Howell, it is not an extraterrestrial creature pretending to be a man of our own human future. One could not sleep well with such an idea in his head. If some non-human monster could do this, I do not sleep at all, said Leakey simply, because it says that two-way communication is to come. I can listen to these broadcasts tranquilly, but I cannot bear the thought of answering them. That seems to me madness." Sergeant Bellews said approvingly, "'You got something there, yes, sir. Did you notice how Betsy's standby light was wobbling when she was bringing in that broadcast? If she could sweat, she'd have been sweating." Leaky turned his head to stare at the sergeant. "'Machines,' said Bellews profoundly, "'act according to the golden rule. They do unto you as they would have you do unto them. You treat a machine right, and it treats you right. You treat it wrong, and it busts itself, still trying to treat you right, see?" Leaky blinked. "'I do not quite see how it applies,' he said mildly. "'Betsy's an old, experienced machine,' said the sergeant. "'A signal that makes her sweat like that has got something wrong about it. Any ordinary machine would break down handling it.' Graves said jerkily, the other machines that received these broadcasts did break down, sergeant, all of them. Sure, said the sergeant with dignity. Of course, whose broadcasting may have been tinkering with their signals since they seen it wasn't getting through. Betsy can take it now when younger machines with less experience can't. Maybe a micro-micro-watt of signal. Then it makes her sweat. If she was broadcasting with hell of a lot more than a micro-micro-watt, it'd be bad. I bet you that every machine we make to broadcast breaks down. I bet." Howell said curtly, "'Reasonable enough. A signal to pass through time as well as space would be different from a standard wave type. Of course, that must be the answer.' Sergeant Bellews said truculently, "'I got a hunch that whoever's broadcasting is busting transmitters right and left.' I never knew anything about this before, except that Betsy was picking up stuff that came from nowhere. But I bet if you look over the record tapes, you'll find they got breaks where one transmitter switched off or broke down, and another took over." Leaky's eyes were shining. He regarded Sergeant Bellews with a sort of tender respect. "'Sergeant Bellews,' he said softly, "'I like you very much. You have told us undoubtedly true things. Think nothing of it," said the sergeant, gratified. I run the rehab shop here, and I could show you things we wish you would," said Leakey. The reaction of machines to these broadcasts is the one viewpoint we would never have imagined. But it is plainly important. Will you help us, sergeant? I do not like to be frightened, and I am. Sure, I'll help," said Sergeant Bellews largely. First thing is to whip some stuff together so we can find out what's what. You take a few Mahone units, and install them and train them right, and they will do almost anything you've a mind for. But you've got to treat them right. Machines work by the golden rule, always. Come along." Sergeant Bellews went to the rehab shop, followed only by Leakey. All about, the sun shone down upon buildings with a remarkably temporary look about them, 
and on lawns with a remarkably lush look about them, and signboards with very black lettering on gray paint backgrounds. There was a very small airfield inside the barbed wire fence about the post, and elaborate machine shops and rows and rows of barracks and a canteen and a USO theater and a post post office. Everything seemed quite matter-of-fact, except the machines. They were the real reason for the existence of the post. The barracks and married row dwellings had washing machines, which looked very much like other washing machines, except that they had standby lights which flickered meditatively when they weren't being used. The television receivers looked like other TV sets, except for minute and wavering standby lights which were never quite as bright or dim one moment as the next. The jeeps, used strictly within the barbed wire fence around the post, had similar yellow glowings on their instrument boards, and they were very remarkable jeeps. They never ran off the gravel roads onto the grass, and they never collided with each other, and it was said that the nine-year-old son of a lieutenant colonel had tried to drive one and it would not stir. Its motor cut off when he forced it into gear. When he tried to restart it, the starter did not turn. But when an adult stepped into it, it operated perfectly. Only it braked and stopped itself when a small child toddled into its path. There were some people who said that this story was not true, but other people insisted that it was. Anyhow, the washing machines were perfect. They never tangled clothes put into them. It was reported that Mrs. So-and-So's washing machine had found a load of clothes tangled and reversed itself and worked backward until they were straightened out. Television sets turned to the proper channels, different ones at different times of the day, with incredible facility. The smallest child could wrench at a tuning knob, and the desired station came on. All the operating devices of Research Installation 83 worked as if they liked to, which might have been alarming, except that they never did anything of themselves. They initiated nothing, but each one acted like an old favorite possession. They fitted their masters. They seemed to tune themselves to the habits of their owners. They were infinitely easy to work right and practically impossible to work wrong. Such machines, of course, had not been designed to cope with enigmatic broadcasts or for military purposes. But the jet planes on the small airfield were very remarkable indeed, and the other and lesser devices had been made for better understanding of the Mahone units which made machines into practically a new order of creation. Sergeant Bellews ushered Leakey into the rehab shop. There was the pleasant, disorderly array of devices with their wavering standby lights. They gave the effect of being alive, but it somehow was not disturbing. They seemed not so much intent as meditative, and not so much watchful as interested. When the sergeant and his guest moved past them, the unrhythmic wave-rings of the small yellow lights seemed to change, hopefully, as if the machines anticipated being put to use which, of course, was absurd. Mahone machines do not anticipate anything. They probably do not remember anything, though patterns of operation are certainly retained in a very great variety. The fact is that a Mahone unit is simply a device to let a machine stand idle without losing the nature of an operating machine. 
The basic principle goes back to antiquity. Ships in ancient days had manners and customs individual to each vessel. Some were sweet craft, easily handled and staunch and responsive. Others were stubborn and begrudging of all helpfulness. Sometimes they were even man-killers. These facts had no rational explanation, but they were facts. In similarly olden times particular weapons acquired personalities to the point of having personal names. Excalibur, for example. Every fighting man knew of weapons which seemed to possess personal skill and ferocity. Later workmen found that certain tools had a knack of fitting smoothly in the hand, seeming even to divine the grain of the wood they worked on. The individual characteristics of violins were notorious, so that a violin which sang joyously under the bow was literally priceless. And all these things, as a matter of observation and not of superstition, kept their qualities only when in constant use. Let a ship be hauled out of water and remain there for a time, and she would be clumsy on return to her native element. Let a sword or tool stay unused, and it seemed to dull. In particular, the finest violins lost its splendor of tone if left unplayed, and any violin left in a repair shop for a month had to be played upon constantly for many days before its living tone came back. The sword and the tool, perhaps, but the ship and the violin, certainly, acted as if they acquired habits of operation by being used, and lost them by disuse. When more complex machines were invented, such facts were less noticeable. True, no two automobiles ever handled exactly the same, and that was recognized. But the fact that no complex machine worked well until it had run for a time was never commented on, except in the observation that it needed to be warmed up. Anybody would have admitted that a machine in the act of operating was a dynamic system in a solid group of objects, but nobody reflected that a stopped machine was a dead thing. Nobody thought to liken the warming-up period of an aeroplane engine to the days of playing before a disused, dulled violin regained its tone. Yet it was obvious enough. A ship, and a sword, and a tool, and a violin were objects in which dynamic systems existed when they were used, and in which they ceased to exist when use stopped. And nobody noticed that a living creature is an object which contains a dynamic system when it is living, and loses it by death. For nearly two centuries quite complex machines were started and warmed up and used, and then allowed to grow cold again. In time the more complex machines were stopped only reluctantly. Computers, for example, came to be merely turned down below operating voltage when not in use because warming them up was so difficult and exacting a task, which was an unrecognized use of the Mahone principle. It was a way to keep a machine activated while not actually operating. It was a state of rest, of loafing, of idleness, which was not the death of a running mechanism. The Mahone unit was a logical development. It was an absurdly simple device, and not in the least like a brain, but, to the surprise of everybody, including its inventor, a Mahone-modified machine did more than stay warmed up. It retained operative habits as no complex device had ever done before. 
In time it was recognized that Mahone-modified machines acquired experience and kept it so long as the standby light glowed and flickered in its socket. If the lamp went out, the machine died, and when re-energized was a different individual entirely, without experience. Sergeant Bellews made such large-minded statements as were needed to brief Leakey on the work done in this installation with Mahone-controlled machines. They don't think, he explained negligently, any more than dogs think. They just react, like dogs do. They get patterns of reaction. They get trained, experienced. They get good. Over at the airfield, they're walking around beaming happy over the way the jets are flying themselves. Leaky gazed around the rehab shop. There were shelves of machines, duly boxed and equipped with Mahone units, but not yet activated. Activation meant turning them on and giving them a sort of basic training in the tasks they were designed to do. But also there were machines which had broken down, invariably through misuse, said Sergeant Bellews acidly, and had been sent to the rehab shop to be retrained in their proper duties. Guys see em acting sensible and obediently, said Bellews with bitterness, and expect them to think. Over at the jet field they finally come to understand his tone moderated. Now they got jets that put down their own landing gear, and hollow and fuels running low, and do acrobatics happy if you only jiggle the stick. They mighty near fly themselves. I tell you, if well-trained Mahone jets ever do tangle with old-style machines, it's going to be a caution to cats. It'll be like a pack of happy terriers piling into hamsters. It'll be murder. End of Part Two